Welcome to The Parlor, featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. I'm Mark Longacre. In this episode, I talk with Jeffrey Walker, professor of rhetoric and writing and communication studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with a conversation about your broad scholarly career. Uh-huh. Um, particularly, I think it's interesting that you started writing about American poetics, Charles Olson and Walt Whitman and Ezra Pound, and then you switched to Greek rhetoric. What prompted you to make such a dramatic change? The dissertation and first book on, on Ezra Pound and Walt Whitman and a few others was partly a way of exercising my past interests. I, at one time, had the idea that I would be a expatriate poet in South America. And then I realized oh, I'll have to have something I can do to make a living. So I, I took an MA in, in teaching English as a second language. So you went abroad, you, you spent some time in, in Libya, if memory serves, right? Right, right, right. This, after a while, it didn't seem like such a good idea when they burned our consulate and, and, <laughs> and so on. Um, then I went to California for my Ph.D., and the, the reason I went there was because one of my professors at, at Portland State, where I did the ESL, mentioned it to me. He said, well, you know, there's this thing in the Berkeley called the rhetoric department. You might be interested in that. And you had never studied rhetoric prior to this. Right, right. So I said, oh, okay, and I applied, and I got in. Your interest in poetry just didn't go away. There was a required sequence of courses in history of rhetoric that everybody had to take. So ancient rhetoric, Renaissance, medieval rhetoric, and Renaissance. I signed up for these courses with the attitude of, well, okay, it's required. I'll, I'll cooperate. I'll, I'll take the courses. And those courses turned out to be really, really productive for me. More productive than the American literature or the yeah, literature courses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I ended up having this strong interest in the history of rhetoric. Then when I went to Penn State for my first job, which you mentioned, when they interviewed me, they asked me, they showed, well, they showed me a list of the courses available in the graduate program, and they said, is there anything missing here? And I said, well, there's no history of rhetoric. So I ended up teaching that. Ah. <laughs> But that wasn't your specialty in graduate school, or at least not the, that's not what you wrote your dissertation about. Right. My, my dissertation was on um, rhetoric of modernist poetry. So you became a classicist because you had to teach the history of rhetoric class that you recommended during your job interview at Penn State. Yes. And you <laughs> that's learned, the way it seemed, Billy. <laughs> and you learned all the classical languages also at Penn State? Uh, well, I taught myself Greek. Really? And uh, when you teach yourself a, a language, you have, I, I like to say this, you have a, a lousy student and a lousy teacher. <laughs> but I, I was doing this while I was an assistant professor, trying to put out articles and so on. So I um, didn't have time. Right. But it still worked out. That's true. It surprised me also. <laughs> <laughs> and so that leads to your second book, Rhetoric and Poetics in Antiquity. Right. 
At what point did you decide to start writing about the ancient methods of teaching rhetoric? There was very little classical rhetoric. People weren't as aware of it as, as I thought they should be. So I, I, I did the coursework, or I taught the course in uh, ancient rhetoric and poetics. And you're asking about after that? Right, after that. you. I remember I took the course in ancient rhetoric and poetics, and we mostly right. studied rhetoric as uh, sort of philosophy and literary mm-hmm. theory. Mm-hmm. But then when you came to the University of Texas, I noticed you were teaching courses on declamation and civic theater. And I'm wondering, like, at what, what point in my absence did you decide, I'm, I'm done with rhetoric and poetics, now it's on to pro gymnas mata? It didn't feel to me like I was abandoning one for the other, <laughs> but... Uh, when did you start teaching your graduate courses focused on the ancient methods of teaching rhetoric? Maybe when I was at Emory. You must have been working on the third book, The Genuine Teachers of the Tsar, long before that. There was, I forget what year it was, but there was a certain point when I started giving papers at you know, rhetoric society conventions. And um, it occurred to me while I was reading the, the ancient stuff is that you know, this is not really theory, the way we think of theory. And so I developed an argument that what you see in the rhetorical handbooks, again, it's not really theory in the modern sense, but it's it's resources for the teacher. Mm -hmm. It's exercises that you have students do to develop their capacities. And it struck me that that's what rhetoric really was and really is to some extent. It's hard to imagine doing rhetoric and not teaching writing. A lot of people do, though. Yes, yeah, some do, but I, I might argue that they're not really doing rhetoric. <laughs> do you feel now that now that you're teaching this as a practical art and not as a theoretical or critical art, do you feel like now you're a real teacher of rhetoric before you were more of a literary critic? Yeah. I was a philosopher or a literary critic who addressed rhetoric in, in his writing, but I wasn't a teacher of rhetoric. Sure. And the ancient methods still work in your classes. You, you have them debate and. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I have them do declamation exercises, which means a speech on an imaginary subject, uh, like you're, you imagine you're such and such a person in such and such a place, and you've been in charge by such and such a crime, and defend yourself. I find that these these ancient exercises, even without any modifications to make them more modern. We don't read them in Latin or Greek, of course. (laughs) (laughs) The sort of unmodified problem for declamation exercises, they get fantastic results. Yeah. And I've come to have a real appreciation uh, of the ingenuity of the people who created them. There there are hundreds of ancient declamation problems laying around and various sources. Very simple-looking scenarios. A short paragraph, a few sentences... Sometimes just one sentence. They, they turn out to be very rich experiences. Right. And students bring their imagination and their creativity. Right, right. Uh, I remember one example of the pirate's daughter. Uh-huh. I'm going to botch this. You'll have to, you'll have to correct me. It's um, the pirate kidnaps a nobleman's daughter. Not quite. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's it's a, young, a young man gets taken prisoner by pirates. Okay. And then the pirates send his father a ransom note, and he refuses to pay. The father refuses the to father pay. The father refuses to pay, so the, the young man is not ransomed. But then the, the pirate had a daughter, 
And the pirate's daughter said to the young man, if you will marry me, I'll show you how to escape. She wants to escape her pirate father. She wants to run away with the young man. Sure. Basically. He escapes. He is, he, she helps him. Uh, and he, he goes back to his home city. His, now his father wants him to marry somebody else. In the problem, it says uh, a, an orphan has appeared. That's the twist. So the father wants him to marry the girl, of course, and, and divorce his pirate daughter, pirate's daughter. And so the young man says, I'm not going to do that. And, and there's one more element to this. The, the father disowns the son. Oh. <laughs> so now there's inheritance at stake. So, yes. Yeah, so so he, he, he takes his father to court to argue that he shouldn't be d- disinherited. Oh, okay. By that the, is really by, rich, by this lazy bum that didn't bother to ransom him when he was a captain. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine students bringing in. They just make things up and bring it in as evidence. Or well, yeah. I mean, these these exercises too are. They, they have intentionally built-in gaps where you can fill in character types, or you can't change anything in the problem. You, 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 if, if it says, uh, I don't, know, he wore a purple hat, and that and that's significant. Then you can't have somebody who's not wearing a purple hat. But, but anything goes, yeah. So you, you have a lot of leeway to, to be creative and invent. Yeah. And you don't have any political pressure because you're not arguing current events. Right. So um, you don't need to know a whole lot. And these big grown-up problems are daunting for young writers. Yeah. In the ancient exercises you did, but declamation ex- exercises from about the age of 15 or 16. So they likely don't know a lot about... Greek law or government anyway. Right. But right. they know a lot about pirates. Well, yeah, because the, the pirates and, and the poor man and rich man and all these characters that appear in, in the uh, declamation exercises are basically characters from theater yeah. or from comedy. The clever slave, the, the faithful wife. But they're all, they're all stereotypes. It'd be like getting students to argue about Star Wars characters or Harry Potter characters. Yeah, and, and you have to put yourself in the Harry Potter movie. Narrative. I'm gonna do this. This is my next class. It'll be Pro Gemnas Mata and Harry Potter. <laughs> Professor Walker's work on the classical methods of teaching argumentation has influenced many of the graduate instructors here at UT. I talked with two of these instructors and asked Professor Walker to reflect on their efforts to bring ancient ideas into contact with modern pedagogy. Tristan Hooker and Max Scott were inspired to rethink the way that they teach their classes, even though these classes are not at all about classical rhetoric. Tristan in particular said that she would reconsider the way that she teaches her her rhetoric of wrestling class. Oh, that's a great topic. Yeah, it is. I feel like this would have been a, a good way to sort of ease into some of the idea, some of the justification that takes place at the beginning of the class of why are we looking at wrestling? Why are we looking at this often comic very much over the top sort of action as talking about persuasion and it, I mean turns out ancient roots potentially um, in ancient justifications and we've talked about it in class where sometimes we might be resistant to that and sort of like oh let the students speak in their own voice and all that type of stuff which can be good but actually showing a history of rhetoric that comes out of imitation and characters and you know speech and character and things like that in a way that sort of complicates authenticity in general. Do you have your students write a monologue? 
Yeah, um, we're doing a video project, but I kind of chicken out and say that they don't really have to be in character if they're not comfortable with that. I just, more of a presentation informed by, uh, late night comedy is the class I'm, I'm teaching, uh, informed by the hosts, but if they want to go full character, they can. If they don't want to, they don't have to. Yeah. So we do something similar that students have to come up with a persona and then embody it as much as they can without you know causing harm to anybody (laughs) (laughs) which you know comedy could do the same thing i suppose um but it it works it it does it does get students just through that process of invitation to think rhetorically i think max should have held the line a little tougher about not letting students off the hook yeah that they have to produce a monologue by some some either real or fictional character, but they can't just be themselves. I'll tell them you said so. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think if, if they were to play in that way, if they had to hold the line, had to imitate a current late night comic, then the exercise would be more fun and more productive? Yeah, ultimately, it would, I think, yes. And you have your students imitate the pirate's son. And... You know, in my class classes, uh, I give my students kind of menu of choices. They can do a declamation exercise on any one of these problems. So I, I think it's preserving the fictionality of it is important because it, it releases a lot more creativity when people, again, don't have to worry about the real politics. And you've had one, more, I think it's one more turn in your scholarly career. You're welcome to correct me. Most recently, you've been writing about Byzantine rhetoric. And you publish translations and commentaries on people like Michael Sellos and mm-hmm. Joseph Recondides. Right. What's prompted you in that direction? You're almost a medievalist now. I know. It scares me. <laughs> I turned to Byzantine rhetoric partly because I didn't know anything about it. And most people don't know anything about it. The Byzantine Empire was established after, after the fall of the Roman Empire. Byzantium begins like around the 5th century A.D., and um, it ended in 1453. And they had uh, rhetoric all through that time. Mm-hmm. Um, they were teaching it, they were practicing it. Uh, it was central to the culture. So I just felt like here's, here's a thousand years worth of stuff. And while much of it is no longer preserved, you know, a lot of it has disappeared and old manuscripts get rotten and disappear, um, there's a, still a huge amount of texts that you can explore. Do you find that these are more theoretical, analytical texts, or that they're more teaching texts? It, it, it depends on the, the genre. If, if somebody presents himself as a philosopher, then it might be more like, like Aristotle, more, more like theory of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But if they're teaching the rhetoric, then it's, it's a matter of doing exercises. Yeah. And I, I think, correct me if I'm mistaken, the one of your early translations and commentaries on Michael Sellos, you decided was uh, a model oration of something that he wrote for his students to imitate. I'm not sure which text I, I was referring to. Was it the encomium on his mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That text is considered by a fellow named Gregory of Corinth, who was a, a major scholar in his day, which was the 12th century. He's listing people who you should use for de- imitation exercises. Mm-hmm. Who should you try to imitate and model yourself on? And in the process of, of talking about that, Gregory mentions that he, he says, what are the four best orations ever? And I, I don't remember exactly what the four are, but one of them is 
Michael Tselos's encomium of his mother. And the other, other rhetoricians refer to Tselos in similar ways. So here's this text, admired by everybody that knows about it. And now almost nobody knows about it. So I, I felt like this has to be put in English so people who aren't necessarily Greekophiles um, will, um, will be able to read it. Right. And you feel the same way about Rakandides' work. Yeah, Joseph Rakandides, yeah. That's a hard name to say. It is. <laughs> I'm working on a, it's a sort of encyclopedia item called uh, Synopsis of Rhetoric. And it's part of a larger project that he called Synopsis of Knowledge or something like that. But the first one, the, the, the um, Synopsis of Rhetoric, was the most complete of, of, of that series that he, that he worked on. Chapter one is the overview of uh, the rhetoric of Hermogenes, hmm. who was the great rhetorical authority at the end of antiquity. And he remained the, the main source on rhetoric for Byzantine schools you know, for all of that thousand years. Then there's another maybe 50 pages, maybe 100 pages devoted to the all, uh, other rhetorical sources. Mm-hmm. So he's moving away from Hermogenes. Right. Although Hermogenes has so much authority, he can't just reject him. It's meant to be like a textbook. I also put Professor Walker in conversation with several graduate students here at the University of Texas at Austin. These students read an article that Professor Walker published in the 2005 issue of Advances in the History of Rhetoric. The article is titled, Mime, Comedy, Sophistry, Speculations on the Origins of Rhetoric. And as you know, I had a chance to sit down with some graduate students here at UT and uh, talk about an article that you wrote. So I, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the conversation that we had about your work and, and then just get your response to their responses. A lot of this conversation was about the connection between democracy and rhetoric, or if you want to use the... the right, that was a central theme of the course, is the historical narrative that makes rhetoric dependent on political systems. Oh, okay. I, no, I didn't know that. Like when democracy flourishes, then rhetoric flourishes, and when democracy falls on hard times, um, then rhetoric falls on hard times. Right. In a way, it's a kind of rough democracy, but it's not explicitly democracy. In the um, many of the mimes that, that uh, are mentioned in the you know in the in the Greek sources did not live in democratic cities. Right. Stephen Dadigblor asked what further implications there might be for historians and future genealogists of rhetoric. I kept thinking about our discussions from the beginning of the class where um, we made a connection between rhetoric emerging at the same time that democracy emerged in Greece. And one would think of, of mime, mime more as something playful and comical. So I'm, I'm wondering, for instance, what, how, how we might put together the idea of democracy as this very serious business, you know, vis-a-vis what you have as mime, and, which is comical. Well, I would argue for not being tied down to the, the, the traditional narrative that says, you know, when democracy flourishes, then rhetoric flourishes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it could be the other way around. Um, rhetoric flourishes, and so as a result, democracy flourishes. So it's possible. 
Um, it's in, in, that in itself is kind of a sophistical or sophistic argument. The climate in which rhetoric develops, it probably does get a lot of help from democracy, but it's, it's not necessarily the cause of democracy. Uh, there's a moment in The Garden of the Talking Birds, one of the essays in your, in your third book, where you say that even in non-democratic circumstances, it was important to teach the manner of democratic deliberation as a game mm-hmm. to preserve the practice of democracy for the next time democracy became possible. Yeah, right, yes. Rhetoric is a storehouse of political potential. Yeah, and it's cultivated, that potential is cultivated again through doing these exercises. So it's serious work, but it's fun. Yes, yes. We had, we had a conversation about the ethic that is implicit in this playful rhetorical exercise. Andy Hearman suggested, for example, that there might be an even deeper theoretical connection between identification, the common connection, mm-hmm. the shared ground that people have, and miming. For there to be ethical collaboration across different groups, miming might be an important feature. Well, I think uh, it all goes back to Kenneth Burke. Uh, and, his, and for me, his notion of pure persuasion as something that you do for its own own sake, and at the same time has the potential for producing cultural shifts. So um, in a rhetorical genre where anything goes, you can make arguments that have real political consequences. It's kind of interesting to hear you make the connection to Berg because uh, Cindy Holland, I I think she said something really similar. I wonder about the use of this sort of humorous thing as a response to that heavy-handed or the heavy work of 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 building democracy or democratic means. So she talks about rhetoric and rhetorical play as a release valve, mm. as something that would uh, make it possible for people to have democracy because it's a response to the heavy work of democracy. Like pure persuasion might be a response to the heavy work of negotiation during the Cold mm-hmm. War. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. Maybe, maybe uh, you and Cindy should collaborate. <laughs> I want to conclude by talking about your style of writing. A number of students in the class thought your article was funny. Tristan Hansen even repeated the joke that you made about the Protagorean maxim, man is the measure of all things. If you happen to be a pig, pig is the measure of all things. <laughs> and we all laughed together about a lot of the little jokes. K.J. Schaffner said that the article was filled with classical allusions. A bunch of Greek words. <laughs> but he also thought the writing style itself was so inviting that he wasn't intimidated I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what you think you're doing with this style of writing. In Cicero's De Oratore, uh, when the two main speakers are discussing style and, and reading, how, what, what people should read when they're in their rhetorical training, who should they imitate, um, and he talks about, well, you can read the historians, you can read the poets, you can read the philosophers, and so on. And Antonius, again, one of these two speakers, says, um, I don't really have time to bother with all these these uh, technicalities of, of the philosophers. I don't want to weigh everything as if in a, a gold scale. I just want to read people who seem like they want to be friends with me. <laughs> and that, I, I kind of have taken that to heart. I've always aimed for a kind of epideictic suavitas as opposed to a relentlessly plain style. Right. Invite people in, make them feel comfortable. Yeah, right. I mean, it's really refreshing. A lot of classical scholarship is 
It's not even plain style. It's abusively complex. <laughs> yeah. So there's one other connection that I want to make, not just about your writing style and its ability to invite the reader, but about the philosophical content that a number of us saw in your writing style, the content of the form. Right. Hannah Foltz noted that it seemed to her you were trying to embody in your writing style a kind of rhetorical humanistic ethos. I think what he's doing is what he discusses in the second paragraph, um, the definition of a rhetorical or humanistic ideal of life, having a certain perversity of outlook combined with an irrepressible mirth. We know that he was being purposeful, but uh, I don't know if we had discussed it yet as being humanistic or... or... So the question is, were you trying to embody that philosophical humanism in your rhetorical style? Uh, Yes. That's the short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, the... That 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 this is about irrepressible perversity uh, comes from Tom Sloan, his and his book on Erasmus. But I guess what I'm trying to do in part is carry that back. Say it's it's not just something you find in Erasmus or or what the Renaissance called Ciceronian rhetoric. Kevin asked um, if you were wearing uh, some sort of a cod piece while you wrote this. <laughs> I mean, can we confirm without knowing what he was wearing? <laughs> I don't know if you. Had... <laughs> I don't know if he had purple robes or or a paunch and <laughs> the other stuff. <laughs> I, I didn't have a purple robe to put on. You don't have a purple robe. No. I don't have any other questions. Um, if you want to give any kind of closing thoughts, or now would be your chance to give your witty remark. <laughs> I'm saving that for later. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you so much for sitting down for the inaugural interview for what I hope becomes a podcast about rhetoric. It's been a real pleasure. It was a pleasure attending your class. Well, I'm glad. This episode of The Parlor was produced by me, Mark Longacre with the able assistance and advice of Will Burdett, coordinator, and Casey Boyle, director of the Digital Writing and Research Lab. The DWRL also provided technological support for recording and mixing the audio. This episode features the voices of Jeffrey Walker, Tristan Hooker, Max Scott, Stephen Dadegblor, Andy Heerman, Cindy Holland, Kevin, or KJ Schaffner, Hannah Fultz, and Tristan Hansen. If you happen to be a sleazebag, sleazebag becomes the measure of all things. <laughs> the music for this podcast was excerpted from the track titled Airtone by Common Ground. This track can be found at ccmixture.org slash files slash airtone slash 58703. We have adapted and used this music under the attribution non-commercial 3.0 Creative Commons license. Other sounds featured in this production were taken from conversation.wave by WolfRFE and downloaded from freesound.org. These have been adapted and used under Creative Commons 1.0 Public Domain Universal License. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those belonging to anyone other than the featured speakers.